What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. With everything going on in the world, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about the goal of hardcore humanism. Simply put, it feels like humanity needs more humanity. Every time I look up, we are harming each other in so many ways. Emotional harm in the form of ignoring, judging, invalidating, and criticizing each other. And even physical harm to people who seem to be different from us in some way. And this seems like it's happening on every level of society. Individual, family, community, professional, and governmental. And the harm that we inflict on each other takes a horrible toll on us, resulting in damage to our physical and emotional health and even loss of life. For some of us, it means we can't find our purpose in life and thrive. But for others, it means that we can't even survive. It's enough to lose all faith in ourselves and in humanity as a whole. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, we may not have all the answers, but we're hoping that some of the principles of humanistic psychology may at least be helpful in finding our true north and in guiding us through the obstacles and uncertainty of our lives to a place where we are thriving. Humanistic psychology is based on the fundamental belief in the ability of human beings to be kind, empathic, and caring, and achieve great things for themselves and others. And on the Hardcore Humanism podcast, we talk with people who have struggled with these issues and figured out not only how to cope, but also how to live out their purpose. Our objective is that for those of you who are just hanging on, these conversations will give you a bit more hope to keep going another day. And for those who are doing okay, we hope these stories will inspire you to work hard to build the life of your dreams. So with that, today we are talking with Heidi Shepard and Carla Harvey of Butcher Babies, who have overcome judgment and discrimination on many levels to achieve their goals of being successful rock stars. So let's hear what Heidi and Carla have to say. Carla and Heidi, welcome. Hi, thank you. Good to see you again. (laughs) It's good to be talking again. Okay, so let's go right into it. You guys now are 10 years of butcher babies. You know, you have, you have proven anybody who doubted, anybody who was a critic, anybody who was wondering what you were doing, you've proved them wrong. Okay. So now in retrospect, so many of your choices seem like, oh yeah, that was, that was a good one. That made sense. And that made sense. But let's go back way, way, way to the beginning before you were even thinking about butcher babies, before you guys even knew each other. And Each of you we've talked in the past about have experienced some sense of being marginalized. Like, you know, like what we talked about a little bit before the show, you know, everybody wanted you to go right, but you felt like you wanted to go left. And can we talk about what those experiences were like for each of you that eventually brought you to the concept of butcher babies? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that even, uh, you know, leaving, Provo, Utah, (laughs) leaving my, the religion I grew up in and, uh, moving to Los Angeles. And I was a a radio DJ and I just had all these things that, uh, I, I worked for a company that my, my family didn't approve of my neighbors didn't approve of. And, um, it was playboy. I didn't, I didn't pose for playboy. I just was on their morning show for the radio station. Well, uh, you fast forward all these years later, one of my brothers moved to Los Angeles. He he moved in with me and one of our neighbors told my brother, well, don't end up like your sister out there. And, you know, for me, I grew up in in a Mormon household. That's not a part of my life anymore. It hasn't been for 15, 20 years at this point, but 
I, you know, it really made me think like, what did I do that was so wrong for these people to say something like that to my baby brother? <laughs> and it was like, I, I've been successful, but you know, in the eyes of them, I am a mess still. And it's like, I've, I've played in front of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. I've released so much music over the last 10 years and they're still saying stuff like that, you know? So it's something that um, doesn't bother me at all, but it's something that I've had to deal with my whole life, even still. But, you know, back in the day, I think that that type of attitude towards me really lit a fire under my ass to do something big. Now, people like myself, i.e. old people, like remember (laughs) that, you know, back in the day, Playboy was very cutting edge in that world, whatever, whatever people's opinions are of it. Um, Now, you know, some people might say, well, with everything that's available on the internet, like why would, why would anyone have a problem with Playboy? And I, I don't know if you can just give a sense to people who maybe are a little bit younger, like how radical it was for you to work at Playboy, given the culture that you came from? Well, when I accepted that job, that's the job that brought me out to Los Angeles. And when I accepted that job, my dad actually cried. And uh, I think he was embarrassed that that name would be associated with the family. Um, in, In the religion I grew up in, and especially when I took that job, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, it it was very radical, very radical. In fact, the radio station that I left to go to that radio station, they're like, well, we'll see you back here in six months. It was, it, it was very radical and very, I guess you could say rebellious of me to do so. It was a dream come true for me to be able to work for a national radio station, regardless of the name. I ended up quitting that because I didn't like the way that I was treated. I didn't like the way that they treated radio as an art form. I really didn't like it. And so I ended up quitting it, but it it brought me to LA and I loved it. And so, you know, I am grateful for that opportunity that I had, but it doesn't speak about me at all. It was, I was a radio DJ and, and I, and I still love radio. I would go back to radio in a heartbeat. Now, Carla, when when we spoke originally, you were coming from a whole different set of things that that made you feel marginalized. You want you want to talk about what that was coming from Detroit? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I grew up um, just outside Detroit, and I'm biracial, and it was a very you know keep in mind you know I'm early 40s, and so things were they're still bad there, I think. And, and in a lot of places, they're still bad. I think this year we've seen how much racial tension still exists in our society. So, you know, if you think back to um, 30 years ago, you know, imagine how I was treated as a biracial kid when there were no biracial kids around. And I remember the first time someone actually told me that I was biracial because I didn't think about it. It was just my family, but I was in school. and It was the first time I had another little friend come to my house and my dad came home from work and this little girl looked at my dad and she said, your dad is black. And I was like, what, 
what do you mean? My dad's black. You know, it just had never occurred to me. And it seems like things changed then. Like it, it was suddenly people were aware um, of different things, different race and people being different in school. And uh, so that started and um, it, people wanted me to pick a side almost, which was if you, you know, if I was going to be black, I couldn't like rock and roll. Um, I couldn't talk a certain way. I had to prove my blackness and which is silly. Um, but then, you know, white, if I was around white people, they would say, Oh, well, you're not really black. You're not really like them. You're not like that. You're like, you have light skin, so it's fine. And it's like, no, it's not fine. I really am. <laughs> you know, it was a very, to be young and have those feelings. Um, it's very confusing. And then my dad uh, abandoned us. Didn't, we didn't see him for years. And so that became ve something very difficult for us. You know, when the people that are supposed to be there for you and take care of you and protect you, especially during these really harsh times of, you know, being a preteen, being confused, um, when they leave, you immediately feel as if your worth is taken away because why would someone just not come to see you? Why would the person who was supposed to be there for you, your hero, just abandon you. So that was really difficult. And I was dealing with all of those emotions, you know, during, <laughs> during puberty. And, um, I just felt very alone. And I had a plan in my head that I even wrote in my diary when I was very young, I hate everyone here. I don't care if they don't like me. I'm going to move to LA and be a rock star. <laughs> so, and, but much like Heidi said, when you feel that way, when you feel like the world is against you and you have nothing and you want to get back at everybody, you do that. And one of the ways that you want to do that is by becoming something bigger than yourself and to show them and throw it in their face. Like, see, you doubted me and this is what I became. But as I, you know, as I grew up, it actually became more about me. Uh, and I think being in Butcher Babies finally, um, that kind of came out. It became more about us and kind of a cathartic thing, releasing our feelings. Writing a book helped me in that way too. It didn't become about, it wasn't about getting back at people anymore. It was about um, fulfilling myself, which is um, a pretty amazing feeling. And it's funny because when I was young and dreaming of what I was going to be to get back at all these people, you know, Playboy was one of those things too. I, I, I said to my brother, I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to be in Playboy magazine and I'm going to be a rock star and I'm never coming back here. And my brother cried when I said that my brother is very sensitive. He always has been. And he would hate if I said that in front of him, but he cried when I said that he's like, why do you talk like that? You know, <laughs> it's like, but that's what I wanted. You know, and back then from the era that I grew up in Playboy was this very glamorous thing. And yes, it was a naughty thing. Like your family wouldn't be too happy, but it was a glamorous thing. And so I went with that. I drove my Ford probe across the country with that in mind. You know, I was going to be a glamorous Playboy model and maybe have my own band. And um, that's what I shot for. And it's funny because both Heidi, Henry, and myself worked at Playboy. So how crazy is, is it such a small world? And I had as much the same experience as Heidi. I became a Playboy TV star and I hosted a couple of shows. But the most, uh, the biggest one was uh, a show where I was the entertainment news reporter for this news channel. Um, but you know, how funny is it that we all had a terrible experience there and, uh, <laughs> that 
And I'm glad that I did because it got me out of that world and put me back into the world of, hey, you came here with a purpose, you know, get that band together, live your dream. And uh, that's what I did. Now, let me back up for a second, because I want to I want to get back to that concept of purpose. But both both of you guys said something as though it were normative, which is that obviously when people marginalize you or tell you you're no good or disappoint you in some way, of course, what you want to do is you want to like go out there and show them. Right. And that that's a that's a wonderful instinct that you that you both had. But for many people, that's not the instinct. For many people, they turn that all on themselves and they self-destruct and they they find self-hatred and self-harm and marginalize themselves in in their own ways, not necessarily intentionally. And so I guess I guess the thing that I'm curious about is were you guys aware of what allowed you to to get to that point where the way that I'm going to deal with this is I'm going to be bigger. I'm not going to make myself smaller. Um, I think there's a certain amount of tenacity in both of us that we probably didn't realize that we had when we were young, but I wouldn't say that our, you know, end goal came without, um, harming ourselves a bit too. I think that, anyone that is from a background where they feel marginalized, you do go through certain things in on your grand path to getting what you want, you know, such as drugs, alcohol, um, anything like that, uh, making bad des- decisions with in your relationships, things like that. I think that all of those things are part of the process when you come from a background where you have been um, abandoned abused, marginalized. Um, I think those are all part of the process regardless. Um, Heidi, go ahead. I think for me, because I, I was I was an athlete growing up. I started track and field when I was seven years old and I competed all the way throughout college. I competed in Russia. It was just, it was a part of who I was. And I remember always being driven by no, like, uh, I, I, another thing too, um, I was a cheerleader throughout, um, high school and college as well. And I, I didn't make the team my freshman year. So I went and I worked and I worked and I worked till I made varsity the next year. And then, um, for track and field, I remember one time it was one of my years in high school and my mom said, you're mediocre. My mom told me I was mediocre and I think she was just trying to piss me off because I'm the I'm the oldest girl and uh, they're, I'm the oldest of six kids. And I think, you know, my mom and I had uh, we had we fought a lot in our relationship. We're really good friends now, <laughs> but we fought a lot. And she told me you're mediocre. And so I worked my ass off and I won state and high jump that year. And I think my entire life has been. If you tell me no, I'm going to go and I'm going to make it a yes. And that's just, I don't know where that came from, but I kind of do, um, I, I give it a little bit of, of credit to sports because that is something I can change. That is something I can work for and I can make it happen. Now, if someone says, uh, 
you're ugly to me. I'm like, Oh, well, whatever. I can't change that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but well, actually you could nowadays. Luckily you don't have that problem. <laughs> as a kid, I couldn't. I, and, and then, you know, I, um, I also had a, um, a birth defect when I was a kid and I don't have a belly button. And so if people would make fun of me because I didn't have a belly button, which actually happened a lot in, you know, summertime at the pool and everything, um, that never bothered me. Cause I was like, I don't care. That's nothing I can change. But, uh, but if they were like, Oh no, you can't do this certain thing because you're a female or you can't do this certain thing because you're not good enough or you can't do this certain thing because, uh, where you came from, what you look like, blah, 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 blah. To me, that's me. That's them telling me just go work hard and you can do it. <laughs> and so I don't know where that came from, but I'm super glad that I have that, um, that drive in me and, you know, finding other bandmates that have that drive in them as well. That's a very unique thing. Now in, in context of, of that, the, the draw to Wendy O. Williams makes a lot of sense. And did you guys, I, I forget, did you guys get together musically before being into her or did you, were you both into her and then you met somehow through that? Well, when I was young, I had a boyfriend that would make me these awesome mixtapes, like the best mixtapes ever. And he had one that he made me um, with like diggable planets. And then right next to it was the plasmatics. Like, you know, he always had these. And then he actually would play. He had a record player and he would play the the um, the single, the Butch Baby single for me. So I did know about Wendy Williams, but um you know, Heidi and I met because we were in a band together before Butcher Babies. We, we was five girls and we did punk rock covers, metal covers. And Heidi was in the band already and I auditioned for it later. And um, one of the songs that we came to do was the Butcher Baby. Yeah. And for us, I think I didn't really know about Wendy O until in my adulthood because... <laughs> Um, where I grew up and how I grew up, I wasn't allowed to listen to that kind of music. And as I found her and I was so drawn to her attitude and how she kind of took the reins in her career and said, don't tell me what to dress like. Don't tell me what to look like. Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. And of course that was something that was very inspirational for me. And uh, we, I, I wasn't a fan prior to, um, knowing that song through that cover band. I just didn't know who she was. And then as I found out, I became a huge fan and went down the rabbit hole <laughs> of, of Wendy O and what she stood for and what she did and the, the ground that she broke. And both of us, as we became friends, kind of discussed how that, how she had been such a huge uh, impact on our careers because she paved the way for females like us to go in and fuck shit up. And I think that that was where the love for Wendy came along. We've been trying to fly her flag <laughs> ever since. I sent Heidi a photo over the weekend of Miley Cyrus wearing a Wendy O t-shirt on stage in a live stream. And then she's also on the cover of Rolling Stone with her boobs out and her tongue out. 
like that. And I, I, I laughed and I was like, oh my gosh, we've been flying this flag for a decade. And all of a sudden Miley comes in, like I discovered something new. <laughs> so, oh, but that should be our Rolling Stone cover. I'm just joking. But, um, but yeah, pretty much what I said. So let's, so let's go to that, to that point then again, where, you know, one of, one of the things that, that I find unfortunate, it's one of the ways that oppression or, or bias plays is that instead of it being like, take, take the, the situation, Heidi, you were talking about, like, instead of just being able to go to Playboy because like, oh, this is what I want to do. It's, well, you have to explain it. You know, so in in theory, and I, I don't know if this was the case when when by the time you guys really hit the scene, but you know, if in the past, if a guy wanted to be a you know out of control crazy rock star, he didn't really have to explain that at a certain point. It was kind of like, oh, well, that's what some guys do, you know. And then the thing becomes, well, if a woman wants to do it, all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, wait, why are you doing that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because people, people from, you know, Bowie, Mick Jagger, Iggy Pop, there've been plenty of people who had worn outrageous outfits and done outrageous things. And yet somehow it's kind of like, did you, you know, but now you kind of have to explain why to an extent. I don't know if, I don't know if that makes, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it completely makes sense. We talk about it all the time. Even, um, even the simple fact that men can go on stage with women grabbing at them there there's been male sex symbols forever um and it's there's something really taboo about being a or there was it's getting a little bit um better nowadays but when we started it was just crazy that we would go up there in these costumes and um but we used to always say but there's men up there who are, you know, thrusting their pelvises and shirtless and sweaty and they're, you know, they're drug addicts and they're display infidelity, you know, and they're cheating on everybody and they have a ton of girlfriends and there's a line of girls out the bus. Even the Beatles had girls just, you know, it just, it's so, but when it's women, it's like, oh my gosh, that's just crazy. You know? <laughs> it, was, it, it was interesting because I, you know, growing up, I had, I went through phases, you know, where I would, I would get like borderline obsessed with a band and I had a Led Zeppelin phase that was like somehow between high school and college. I always discover bands like 40 years after they're, they're, they make it. And, and I hadn't, I, I used to like the song remains the same. I would watch over and over and over again. Like I, I, I remember one time I drank a bottle of Southern comfort, like while watching the song <laughs> remains the same. And I passed out before dazed and confused. I was like, just so into it. And, and I watched it, it was on recently and I hadn't seen it in like, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And I realized this whole movie is me sitting there like with Robert Plant's crotch in my face. Like I, yeah. I didn't even, and, <laughs> not, and it's, not it, to mention that he had like 13 year old girlfriends, 14 year old girlfriends. And, you know, so, so I, I can imagine for you guys, the song remains the same was, was at least in my world was classic. Right. And yeah. now all of a sudden you guys come out and everyone's like, wait, wait, what are you doing? This is this is edgy. This is like you know, this is inappropriate. And I, I I could imagine just being like, ah, oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> no, know? it's it's pretty ridiculous to be honest because we were just having you know we're just some friends got together having fun trying to shake shit up just a little bit you know in the early two thousands 
think everything was about shock value. Everything is just go up there, be silly, have fun, be shocking. I mean, look at, look at the MySpace kids, you know, look at, look at Manson, you know, the first time I went to one of his shows, he was half naked crawling up a wall with makeup streaming down his face. Uh, Why can't I do that? Why do, why am I a terrible human being if I do that? Well, people told us all the time, people still say this, oh, they did that to, to, uh, they had to do that to get famous because their music sucks or something like that. And it's like, we didn't have to do something like that. We just did because it was fucking fun. (laughs) But see, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing is that when, when one of the ways that that kind of bias gets expressed is that it can't just be taken at face value. It's as if you're you're saying something or you're rebelling against something or you're trying to make a statement of some kind or you, as you say like or you're trying to you know shock value as opposed to with other people like you just get to do it because in theory that's just what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And right there it at was... that at that moment it's like where it becomes like wait a minute you've just reframed this person's entire career based on you. Not yeah, but on them. unfortunately, when you're in the public eye, that's what you go through. That's what everyone who is in front of a camera goes through. Everyone has a perception of who you are. And to try to go door to door and change everyone's mind is, is not going to happen. Well, and, you know, when when we started playing in this band, we didn't have a future goal in mind. We we just loved doing what we were doing. We came from this cover band and we wanted to keep doing that. We wanted to write some original music. And I, even if we would have just had a solid couple of years of playing on the Sunset Strip, doing what we loved, we would have been happy. Of course, we all had bigger goals in mind, but we weren't trying to, you know, turn the music world upside down at the time. We were just being and doing exactly who we are, who we were and what we wanted to be doing. So um, for people to put that much emphasis on, you know, us using it as this shock value thing is just silly. Well, and uh, for us, I even talked to one of the girls that was in that cover band with us pretty recently, and they were kind of bummed out when Carla and I quit because we went to do our own thing and they continued to do the cover band and we didn't speak to them for years. And then when I finally got to talk to her, she was one of my best friends back in the day. And when I finally got to talk to her, she was like, no, I'm proud of you guys. You guys are doing things I wouldn't have been able to do. And that was just, that was kind of, kind of cool. You know, we would have been happy, you know, just playing on the sunset strip, doing stuff, but you know, things took a turn and, and people noticed and people wanted to be a part of it. And they saw this, this movement of these wild chicks kind of just out there breaking down walls. You're not supposed to do these things. And then, and, um, fast forward 10 years, there's so many more females in metal and there's so what, what you said, Heidi was important. You know, um, the girl that you're talking about, super talented girl, beautiful girl, but she didn't have the drive and people like you and I, like, as soon as we met, it was there. We felt it. It was like a, like a electrical current between us. Like we knew that we shared that, you know, we'll do anything to get to where we need to be together. We will do that. Whatever, you know, I'm, you know, the rider dies and, you know, we will put our best foot forward. We'll do anything it takes when the other girls in the band, there's no way they wouldn't have never gone on tour. 
for more than a week, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have uh, done what it takes. You mean writing in a, in a converted airport shuttle and that didn't for have two months, for two no, months. <laughs> no air but, conditioning, no, <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty cool because, you know, as time has gone on, um, regardless of what people have said about where we started and how we started, um, seeing the movement and seeing and speaking to all these different females in the industry now who are so like they're, they look up to us in a way, which is so weird to me because I, I didn't have female, um, idols to really look up to besides Gwen Stefani there, uh, but female idols to really look up to as a, as a, you know, starting as a musician. And, um, and so that's a really cool thing for me to feel like we did knock down some walls that were placed in front of us for decades. It's just as a total aside, you know, I, I kind of feel like it's, it's not that no doubt was overlooked or underrated because they were popular, but I, I don't think musically people gave them their due. Like when I listen back to that stuff, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is serious stuff. Yeah. You know, I think it's hard when there is a beautiful girl up front to dissect it and, and look behind it and say, Hey, but the music's really good too. That's a common common issue um, with music in general. People don't want to look behind and give give note to the musicians that make it all happen. And, you know, they don't want to, I think it happened to us too. All they focus on Heidi and I, and they decide whether they like us <laughs> as people and whatever else. And then they look behind us and say, Oh, well, the band's okay. Actually the band's pretty good. Okay. Wait a second. I like it. You know, it's exactly like you said, it's like, why do we keep doing the same thing when we see somebody do something different, do something novel, do something bold that we put them through the ringer for years, decades, right? And then when they quote unquote make it, we're like, oh, uh, you know what? That, that was that was a good idea, you know? Because <laughs> we we because like I I I just I don't even know. It's like we have this like societal hazing that we keep having to do for people. And it, the thing that really drives me crazy was like 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 Prince. Like like everybody was like you know, oh, Prince and Princess, uh, and I can't believe he died. It's like, and there is a kid right now somewhere. He's, he's, you know, he looks different from other people. He's kind of to himself. He's playing a bunch of instruments and someone's probably kicking the shit out of him right now. Like they're not sitting here being like, oh, that, that was Prince 20 years earlier. Let's learn from the fact that we like Prince or that our parents maybe like Prince and like go back and be like, yeah, hey man, you know, do it. You know, and it's like with you guys, like there had been people who had been through, there had been women who had broken through in rock mm -hmm. and, and yet nobody just said to you, Hey, listen, you know, this is going to be tough and this, but, but good for you. Like before you became right. famous, before you became successful. Yeah. Luckily for me, I did have a little bit of that in my life. My grandfather was a drummer. And so he always, him and my grandma put me in violin lessons when I was young and so I, in singing lessons, all kinds of stuff. So they always said to me, especially my grandpa, that I was going to be a musician and I was going to be okay and this and that. So there, luckily I did have some, some of that in my life, but you're right. Um, you know, I noticed too lately when someone dies, oh my God, they were amazing. You know, uh, you know, fringe 
you know, musicians. And it's just, it is, it's terrible. People should um, embrace the weirdos and, and the people who are quiet in class or scribbling in, you know, drawings in their notebook or, you know, the weird kid playing the violin. Um, it's, those people are, are, you know, special people and yeah, being marginalized sucks. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I get it as a parent because like, if I see my kids really honing in on something, you know, that they're really into, like, I love it. But then there's just a little part of me that gets scared. Well, what if, what if that's bad? Like, what if they're, you know, like, what if they should be spending more time doing this? Or what if they should be spending more time doing that? And, and I'm sitting here telling you this thing that I hate. And then I, I hear myself doing it, you know, in some ways, because you get so terrified with your kids that something wrong is going to happen. And I, I see that a hundred percent. And I don't blame my dad for, you know, crying when I accepted a job at Playboy because in his head and how he grew up, he's like, oh my God, this is, this is radical. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't let her do this. And I don't blame him at all. I don't blame him at all. I don't blame you know, parents for having, you know, that inner battle. I mean, when my dad had me, he was a child <laughs> basically, you know, and he's like this, my, my daughter's growing up and she's doing all these things. Do I approve what I do these things? I completely understand that. And I'm not a parent. I, I, would, I don't know how that would be if my daughter decided to do the things that I did, you know, even having gone through it. So I, I understand that inner battle a hundred percent. And I don't think there's one right or wrong way to deal with it. I think everything's just a learning experience and we just have to kind of go along with it. It's, uh, there's no right or wrong with that. I also think it's just extremely scary for parents, you know, looking back, I didn't think about it at the time, but just to watch your kid get in their car to drive across the country by themselves to a new city, a new life. Like that's, that's pretty hardcore for a parent. You know, it's one thing if your kid goes off to college, that's hard enough, but they're in a dorm and they're safe, but to drive their car across the country, whether it's from, you know, Oregon, like Henry's from, or from Utah or from me, you know, and alone to a new city that is, you know, widely regarded for crazy drug use and crazy people and to watch them go. And then also, you know, I know that for me, like my mom, there's a lot of things that she could do. She had a beautiful voice. She was a beautiful singer. And it's like, I'm sure that parents sometimes are like, damn, I wish that I had had the, you know, the gusto to like go out and do that on my own too. But, you know, our parents, like Heidi said, her parents were very young. Mine were very young. My parents had me when they were like 20 years old. You know, it's a, it was a whole different thing back then. So let's, let's talk about that that goal of liberation, because liberation was a big thing that you guys talked about when we first spoke. And okay, so here you are now, right? And here you are, you guys have, I mean, I'm just saying from an outsider's perspective, you've done it, whatever the it is, you've you've done at least one version of it. And so I think a question that some people have is like, do those wounds heal? Or is it always there as I feel like like I, I kind of have to keep proving myself or I kind of want to keep pushing that button. Like, see, 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 you know, yeah. like I did it. I'm going to do it more now. I think it's always there a little bit. Um, 
sometimes I think you kind of regress into those childhood feelings of like, see, look at me. I told you I'd do it. But I think as you get older, it kind of fades away and you're able to get it out in, in healthy ways. And um, I've, over the years, I've learned that by just having conversations with people, the uncomfortable conversations that I never wanted to have, like with my father, it has made things better. And I'm way less affected by my past than I used to be. And, you know, even as a woman, I think as you know, when you get in your thirties, uh, late thirties, early forties, you suddenly just re- you really don't care anymore. <laughs> it's about <laughs> what people think about you. I mean, there's days, of course, that you, that you absolutely care, but more often there's the days when you know who you are and yes, you want more, you're not done, but you're you know very comfortable. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you, the drive that you guys both described, right, which, which again, that brought you together, how does that, how does that kind of, for lack of a better saying it, age or develop over time? Because it's very hard to be that intense all the time for years and years on end. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think for us, it's been uh, sometimes one of us will be more intense than the other as, as the years have gone on, you know, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. You know, uh, especially when there's pushback, (laughs) even still, especially when there's pushback, there's of course times where like, Oh man, is this worth still going for? Is this worth still, you know, beating those doors down? Is that is it still worth it? And I think that when we get together or we just like even talk about those feelings and think about where we've come from and uh, how, how much we've done over the years, it's that kind of, we ignite it in each other. Um, But it's definitely been a trek to stay, to keep that drive. It has, I mean, everything becomes stagnant at times here and there. And especially when you, that's kind of what bottom of a bottle is about the song. Um, When you're kind of just feeling at a loss and um, you know, is, did I do this right? Did I, did I mess things up? Did I do this? Did you know, like the loneliness that kind of comes along with that. And so um, it has been kind of hard to keep that drive alive. It has. I think that that's just a natural thing. Um, well, I think too, like when you get older, you have more responsibilities, you have more bills to pay, you have a family, you have this and that. And so sometimes it becomes like, is this being in a band thing, just an ego trip now? Is it going to be, you know what I'm saying? It's hard. It's hard to be in a metal band and go out on the road and, and, you know, so you have to really, really love it. And you have to remember that love. Sometimes you have to kind of look at it from afar and say, oh, wow. Yeah, that I, I do enjoy being a part of this. I love what I do. Um, you have to, you do have to remind yourself. Yeah. Cause I always, I always felt like if you have that bug, you know, and I think, I think that to a certain degree, one of the nice things about metal is that you can't really age out of it, no, um, no. Which, you know, which is, which is different. It's like, you know, Thank like, God. Uh, right. No, <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause, cause like in theory, like, look, any, anybody can technically be a pop star at any age, but it becomes a little less likely. Whereas if you look at the, the metal bands, like, you know, metal just kind of 
keeps going. And so there is this sense of, is it, is it an ego trip or is it like you said, just, I, this is just what I love to do. You know what I mean? This is just what I'm so into. I think think for, for my band, it's definitely, we love what we do. And luckily, you know, we are able to financially keep the boat rolling. Um, So we're very lucky in that aspect. And, you know, all of us do love what we do. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, things that you guys are doing right now. We just talked about bottom of the bottle. You have a new song out sleeping with the enemy. So let's talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Sleeping with the enemy. It was a very vulnerable state. Uh, We wrote that and bottom of a bottle pretty much at the exact same time. And it's definitely a snapshot of what we were feeling at that time, kind of lost, kind of feeling, you know, is this, is this still happening? Um, You go through moments where you're hot, you go through moments where you're not. And in that moment, it was, you know, butcher babies is up in the air. Like we don't know what the future holds. Um, And it was kind of a look at ourselves and sleeping with the enemy. You're the enemy. <laughs> you're your own enemy. And it's kind of a looking at yourself and saying, what have I done in my life to get to this point? Did I ruin this? Did it, uh, did it become stagnant? Did, you know, what, what happened here? And in the chorus, it kind of uh, alludes to the hypocrisy that kind of everyone really goes through. Um, And you'd be a hypocrite to say you don't do hypocritical things because everybody does. And so the chorus says, I'm a liar, a fake, everything that I hate. Because there's moments where you kind of realize you've become the exact monster you never wanted to be. And it's it's looking at your life and being, how did I get here? And I don't think many, my favorite thing about the song is that, you know, it's taking a good hard look at yourself. Like one of my favorite songs of all time is that Henry Rollins song, Liar. And this is kind of like our liar in a way, um, because it's just, it's like, you're the asshole in the song. We're the assholes in the song. Um, and you know, rather than it being about someone else who's hurting us, you know, we're hurting ourselves and it's such a great song because it's one of those songs that you can listen to and it could be about a relationship. It could be about a situation and, you know, songs are best when they're left open to interpretation to the person listening, you know, what is it about to, to this person versus this person? One of the lines is I'm so sick of our chemistry. And it's like it, what it was written uh, about, looking at yourself, but anyone could take it and be like, Oh, this is a chemistry about with the relationship or about a friend or whatever the case may be. But for us, it was really just opening ourselves up and taking a good hard look inside. There's a lyric that says I'm dry, I'm drowning. Um, I'm love, I'm hating. And it's all about the, uh, the, the inner, our inner selves fighting each other. You know, and it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I think it's so responsible to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that any, I mean, look, I, I make my living off of people to a certain degree, you know, <laughs> looking inward and reflecting on themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I obviously appreciate that process. But one of the things that I always find so disturbing is how much the narrative could, could swing, like it, from one side to another based on what's happening at a given moment. 
you know? So like, like I remember like before I got married, you know, and it was, it was like, I don't understand. Like, why does he have trouble committing and what's wrong? And does he have issues? Does he not want to be in a relationship? And then as soon as I got married, it was like, oh, you know, he, he always has been so good to wait. And he's so smart with like, you know, he never, he never does something that he doesn't want to do and, and look how great things turned out. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm the same schmuck I was before, but now all of a sudden I'm like, you know, <laughs> I like all of a sudden I know something. It's like, I, I don't, I, I didn't think I was so bad before. I don't think I, I know anything now. And I, and I'm kind of wondering from you guys, have you ever either with the band or even with relationships gone through something where it's like, you know, just because of how something turned out all of a sudden now it's like, well, instead of I'm on top of the world, like I'm the lowest of the low, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we've been through that a lot. You know, um, I've been, I was definitely in it in my last relationship in my marriage, you know, <laughs> like perception is crazy sometimes. And there's definitely been points like that in the band as, as well. Like even when we decided to exit our label, um, it was, a really hard decision. We had the opportunity and they were offering us money to stay. And we didn't feel like it was, um, it was going well in a way. So we just kind of like, we dipped out. And ever since then, you know, I, we've gone back and forth, like kicking ourselves. Do we make the right decision? Did we not make the right decision? Like, how could we, we've always been signed, you know, and how, what kind of decision was that to not be signed? It, it fe felt like, uh, almost like shit. What the, what did we do? You know? And, um, and I think that's where we were when we were writing these songs, like, why did we make this sort of decision? Well, now fast forward as the songs are coming out, um, I don't feel as like, oh crap. <laughs> I feel like, okay, maybe we did make the right decision because things are just fine. And um, it was a gamble. It was a gamble. And having that gamble, I think puts you in a really vulnerable state by all means. And um, it was a, a huge decision. And in the end, I'm glad we made it, but I spent a couple of years like really kicking myself, <laughs> myself about it. You know, but yeah, the end result did turn out okay. And we've had them where the end result didn't turn out okay. Um, you know, we've had both. But that's okay because we're all, I think the other special thing about our band, at least the three three of us, the core members that have been together for so long, we're, we're adaptable in all areas of our life. And that's like a huge, huge thing to have on your side. And I found that most people are not. Um, if something changes in their life, it really sets them off and they go off the deep end. But with us, we analyze the situation and really think about what we can do to put it back in our favor. And we're all committed to fixing it, even if it takes a while. <laughs> well, guys, I am looking at the time and uh, listen, I wish you the best of luck. And, uh, you know, the songs are great and I hope that they continue to get the attention they deserve. And I hope things continue to go well for you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us back. All yeah, right. it's been nice chit-chatting. A good catch-up. <laughs> good catch-up indeed. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank Thank you. Bye. So there you have it. 
Heidi Shepard and Carla Harvey of Butcher Babies discussing how they overcame marginalization in the form of sexism and racial discrimination, as well as the judgment of others about who they were and who they should be. It was very inspiring that they found Wendy O. Williams of Plasmatics as an icon of someone who bucked convention and asserted her individuality. And now Heidi and Carla are doing the same for a whole generation of people who were told who they could be and who they couldn't be. And it begs the question, why do we keep doing this to each other? Why do we judge and limit others first and ask questions later? How many times does this need to be proven to be a harmful dynamic? I think for all of us, we can begin by asking the same question in two different ways. We can ask someone, what are you doing, in a cold, judgmental way, where we are mostly criticizing rather than inquiring. Or we could take a cue from humanistic philosophy and psychology and ask, hey, I'm curious, what are you doing? That question affirms our humanistic belief in the inherent goodness and value of every individual, where we are actually curious about and open to something unique. It can make all the difference in how we understand our own experience and how we connect with others. We can go from being that harsh person who stood in someone's way to being that person who lets someone know that their unconventional, outside-the-box dreams may have merit and may be worth pursuing. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder Island Booman for producing this podcast and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.